Hey, Coiners, it's been a while since I've brought you an announcement like this, but guess what? We had sound issues. Crazy sound issues. It's like bumpy. I don't know. Anyway, we're really happy to, uh, to bring you our discussion of the jet set. So you just enjoy. to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. We at Space Technology Laboratories have set our minds to the challenges of the future. Welcome to They Coined It. Hey, Roberta. Dan. Uh, that's Viscount Dan. We're going to go by, I'm going by Viscount. I'm giving, you're getting, you have a new title. That's right. <laughs> I like it. I love when, um, I love she asked him more, more exotic food that's not exotic. Don, have you ever had Mexican food? <laughs> there's literally, in New York City, there's literally tacos being cooked in a cart on the corner. You know, that's how not exotic it is now. I'm sure it was. that Even for Southern California, <laughs> pretty exotic. Let's see, my wife made gazpacho one. That's Spanish. It didn't go very well. You know, like, what's he thinking? I think it's a period <laughs> thing. Of course. Yeah. And it, uh, it obviously makes sense that on the West Coast, they had it first. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about how food trucks are faring in this, in our... Oh, shitty. They've got to be... They, I mean, it's, it's street traffic because business. My re- because one of my favorite, quote-unquote, restaurants in New York City, in the West Village, parked just a couple blocks from Marie's Crisis. You can go there at 3 in the morning. It's cash only. It's called Jalapeno. It is there you go. the greatest right. food truck. It is so good. And I was just thinking about them the other day and thinking, I can't wait to see them again as though we're going to be returning to what, what you know, as though everything got frozen in time and all these businesses haven't been crushed. So yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the Jalapeno Inc. business is, but the, um, I, I can't imagine the food truck industry is, is faring much better than the restaurant industry, um, which is awful. And um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just funny. It was just funny to me how how you know. Oh, it was great. <laughs> it was a food. it was a great touch. More more of Don's or Betty's tour around the world. <laughs> yeah, that's why I said like Betty made gazpacho, but that didn't go very well. <laughs> I had gazpacho a couple weeks ago. <laughs> it's just so good. The noodles, the buttered noodles. Oh, and Swedish meatballs because you get those at IKEA now. <laughs> no, look, Roberta, this is one of my unabashedly favorite. Mad Men's. It's one of your unabashedly not favorite Mad Men's. I didn't have it that way until I I sat down and I watched it. It certainly hasn't been one like you've said you've gone back. This is one you'll go back oh, to. This you just yeah, love. Yeah. You know I haven't done much of that in years, so I don't have one. So I sat down and I watched this. And one of the things I, I've mentioned, you know, that I asked myself is how do I? How does it make me feel? Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of episodes of Mad Men that don't make me feel warm and fuzzy. This is a challenging show every time. But, <laughs> you know, this is... Um, I don't have the references for this episode. I know that this episode gets compared to different, you know, styles of film and maybe Fellini. Yeah. I don't even know. I'm, I'm so bad at that stuff. But it, but you can feel the references. You can feel that it's referential. But it, it just felt kind of like a version of a horror movie <laughs> and not a version that I enjoyed 
you know, that I enjoyed. A lot happens. It's very interesting, but it didn't, I don't, I don't love it. I don't, yeah. I don't love it. It doesn't give me feelings that I want. Again, it's so much playing against the medium. Any other show based in New York where the characters go out to California, it's, it's sort of like kitschy and stupid and completely not realistic. This is like, you know what? You go out to California sometimes. It is a little disorienting and it's surreal. And it's like, wow, this is, this is La La Land. This is so not where, <laughs> so different from New York. And you end up acclimating to that difference more and more as you make more trips and you maybe get older, but, but, but it's not, doesn't stay new. There's also a time, a time change. Yeah, and, and, and transcontinental flight was fairly new. Not, not brand new, but not everyone had done it. I mean, they talk in the show about people not taking their flights, or I think Freddie with the Mohawk account was like, airfare is too, too expensive to waste on your wife. You know, like just crazy <laughs> stuff about how, referring to how new uh, air travel was. Anyway, there is this kind of surreal vibe to it, number one. Number two, it's also like, whether it was the director Phil Abraham or Weiner, the writer, like there was almost like this intent to really immerse the viewer in California. It wasn't just a trip to California. It was like a sojourn. It was like, it was like, we're going to dip the viewers in what it's like to be in California in 1962. Because to them as artists, that was meaningful. And the way that this episode um, executes on that not just thematically and visually, which is one thing, but it's also just the plot moves. We, we More about Don is like revving up and accelerating. And this whole thing about season two, it's not just about his identity and where's he from. And, but, but like there's all these things kind of mixing together with this, this character, this cipher Don Draper, who does all these unexpected things that somehow make sense in the end. To me, this is just a beautiful piece of that puzzle. So some of it has to do with how um, how the season resolves, which we don't know yet. But just even in watching it as a solo episode, um, I love that style and I love that feeling and I love that unexpectedness of it. I think you give the California piece a little too much credit. <laughs> like <laughs> I think it could be. There's a lot about California, but it's also like this is a very weird journey into a very weird California. Yeah, they're not going to downtown LA. They're going to like some resort hotel somewhere, probably on the outskirts of town. Uh, and then they're in Palm Springs. So it's a very specific, <laughs> they cherry pick their locales. There's no question. Oh, I just saw Tony Curtis in the men's room. Handing out towels? Tony Curtis, Don. Thing like that. The Jet Set, written by Matthew Weiner, director Phil Abraham. Original air date, October 12, 2008 takes place between September 24th and October 1st, 1962. During the desegregation of the University of Mississippi, right? Is that right? Yes. So I want to go back to actually something you said, which is that a lot happens for Don. I don't agree with you. I don't think anything happens plot-wise with Don. All that happens is he... I think a lot happens thematically for Don, and we'll get into all of that, but really nothing happens. All that happens is he cuts work and he sleeps with somebody. And then at the end, there's clearly this cliffhanger moment where something yeah. might maybe will happen, but nothing happens. What happens is what Duck mm. is doing. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, now that's plot, right. Don's Correct. out there in 
literal and figurative La La Land. <laughs> like, and while he's sleeping, you've got, you know, the, the agency being sold from under him. Under his feet. <laughs> That's wild. And we, it's, it's, I just keep thinking about what it took to have Don sort of run away a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and that hadn't even happened yet. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and, and to me, in some, some way, those, those two things are connected, right? There is a real transatlantic vibe to both of those things. It's the it's the literal jet set that that Don's running with for this for this episode, and this kind of what you know they don't talk about it, but it's old money and it's old Europe and it's post war and it's all this kind of weird stuff. But clearly European in origin, and the purchase of Sterling Cooper would be European in origin, you know. Right. <laughs> and you know what? I think I need to reexamine what I'd said earlier about when Duck started drinking again. You think? <laughs> Sorry. Because there's nothing to say that this is his first drink, but it kind of obviously is his first drink. I mean, I didn't type out told you so. Yeah. But Stupid I fuck. Uh, but I mean it was it was really clear. He I yeah. really thought when he gave Chauncey away, he was giving himself permission to start drinking again. I figured he went home that night and tied one off. That was my interpretation of events. And didn't I, we see him drink or no? We saw him like sniff, you know, the aroma of the bottle and the romantic, right. uh, you know. But I, and so giving away Chauncey was probably less about I'm not going to drink in front of my old drinking buddy. It was when Chauncey's here, I drink, and I'm actually going to stave that off by um, sending this one out onto uh, Madison Avenue somewhere to go get his next meal, and that's what it was. So he probably didn't go home and drink that night, which was my my probably erroneous interpretation. Every addict has their their stuff, their routines, their accoutrements. Mm-hmm. Right. That right. it's part of part of what you part of um it's part of the addiction. It's part it's part of it becomes part it's a ritual. of ritual. Like, the ritual, thank you. Ritual, that's yeah. that's a great that's a great way to put it. And he knows, like he knows when he goes and buys those lifesavers, mm-hmm. like, ugh, this is part of it. But there's also a little like, yeah, I got my I got my toys again. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's there's all of that. It ties back to that Matt Weiner comment that I referenced uh, one or two episodes ago, which was that the unpleasant part of this, the fact is that Duck does his best work when he's drinking. <laughs> that proved out. Well, that's Matt. I mean, uh, that that's from the source. So we, we can kind of telegraph. But this is, I mean, I was kind of attributing the Heineken thing to it. And if he wasn't drinking then, then that's just an example. But this most certainly is, right? He starts, he falls off the wagon with Sinjin drinking martinis at lunch, which, as you point out, were small martinis. Those were not big, That's right. <laughs> big huge martinis. That's right. Um, but uh, falls off the wagon there, and then he's suddenly injected with, <laughs> with all the confidence and, and business smarts in the world that he's able to engineer this thing rather quickly. You know, there's something they talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, you do these 12 steps, and there's, there's kind of the living sober. And when we talked about it last time, I talked about the life of the dry drunk. Now, AA is not the only way to achieve sobriety, but I'm, I, that's a model I'm familiar with, so I'm just going to, you know, just putting that disclaimer out there. I understand there's other methods that are effective. Um, they, they basically talk about living sober. Recovering alcoholics will make jokes around like, oh, don't take that second, that extra thing from the salad bar or you're going to get drunk. <laughs> what I couldn't help but notice is he's doing a really backhanded sleazy deal and that's gonna get you drunk like in that thinking your integrity 
is aligned with your sobriety and he doesn't have the actual sobriety. He just has the dryness. So there's nothing to tether him to the integrity. And then he does this, again, this very sleazy deal. He's lying to everybody and manipulating everything to save his own ass. Let's put a pin in that part of it, the, the whether it's a sleazy deal. We should explore that. Um, but my question about dry drunk, I'm speaking either first or secondhand about it. It's just like a definition that I'm, I'm thought I was somewhat aware of. But I always thought dry drunk was someone who was technically sober but still had all his or her underlying issues, uh, whether it's anger or unresolved, you know, all these things that are still there. Yes. They've conquered the act of not drinking, but they're still like kind of always on this hair trigger that either could help them fall right off the wagon, but causes other issues in their life. It's both. There's both sides of that because how you not be a dry drunk Mm -hmm. is you be quote unquote sober with a program, with a support system, and with and with the ethical connection, right. it's both. You are you are right. The okay. the the, the um, and again, these are these are distinctions made in AA. They're not the truth. They're just a way to view things to to give you power around the world of it. Right. Right. Um, I know. I mean, I have I've I know people who've gotten sober without a program and 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 gotten sober. You know, it's but it's and it can it's harder sometimes, but you do you. First, I ever heard that term. <laughs> Dry drunk. It's not fun. Yeah, it's not funny at all. But it is fairly recent. I didn't know this term at all, but I explored it when, of all people, Stephen King on Twitter during the Kavanaugh hearings, and when Kavanaugh went on that rampage about, I like beer, you know, mm-hmm. and St- and Stephen King's like, and Stephen King's got you know his own history that he's speaking of. Uh, said uh kevin to me seems like a dry drunk yeah yeah no that was <laughs> like, it that, and i'm like what that's an awesome term what is that even me and then you know you kind of <clears throat> realize it's a real thing and you go oh my gosh that's i probably know a dozen people yeah <laughs> right you know um anyway so i totally off topic no and I'll, I'll give you one more example um my sister had a drunk in her life many years ago and then he stopped drinking without a program and she said it was better when he was drinking because Ugh. at least then I knew when he was drunk. I thought that was fascinating. Like yeah, he would be drunk thing. sometimes without alcohol, without the lifesavers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's harrowing. So it's interesting. So the overarching theme that I saw for this episode is is like dream fantasy versus reality. And and we, we talked that also strictly specifically dreams in in last week's episode the dreams were apparent when we discussed the inheritance partly because it partly came to me because of the because of the stylistic stuff because this episode is filled with a lot of moments that you're right. not sure if it's really happening or not sure yeah. um interestingly though all of those are don and california and back in new york None of those. Like back in New York, you know that everything is happening. That's happening is happening. However, fantasy versus reality, the disconnect between Duck thinking he's doing a great job and he's and they're they're about ready to make him partner, mm-hmm. and how Duck was actually in reality performing. Yeah. Do you think Duck was fooling himself, or was he putting on the confident face that you need to put on sometimes to get where you want to go? Was he kidding himself? Yeah. I don't think, I think Duck was genuinely taken aback. I mean, he's a salesman. He's selling himself. 
Yeah. Nobody was approaching him, so he knew he had to have the conversation with them, but I think he was genuinely surprised to hear that they noticed that he wasn't, you know, I think all those excuses that he that he told himself, uh, that he told them, you know, bad year, this, that. I don't think that he noticed objectively that his 30% not being hit uh, yeah. was a problem. I think he thinks he's great. I think he knows he revs up the team and he manages this and da, 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 da. Now, secretly, he's walking around, we, we see later, completely mm. resenting the fact that Don was in charge of the creative and he's not. So he's a bitter, angry man. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the larger gripe. He thought he thought there'd be like kind of graded on a curve with that, you know that he he wasn't thinking he made his numbers when he didn't make his numbers. Every salesperson is very aware where they are versus his numbers, but he thought that he would be given some sort of dispensation for for not reaching them. How great he is! How just great he is! How terrific he is! And Roger Sterling's even when you hit your numbers, you're not really getting dispensation from Roger Sterling. I'd be proud to present my accomplishments. Good, because I'm at a loss. What is that supposed to mean? You haven't exactly delivered on that 30% you promised. I think we've really performed in a very dismal year. These things are cyclical, you know that. Is there some question about my value to Sterling Cooper? Just think about the board. Bird Cooper hates everyone. Uh, so you mentioned earlier about the nature of the deal that Duck is engineering here, and you said it's sleazy. I don't know if I see it as sleazy. I think I think that happens... It's insider information. It's not on the up and up with Roger personally based on what Roger's going through. Um, you know, there's that scene where Roger and his lawyer, whose name I can't remember, uh, comes out of Roger's office right before Duck goes in, and the lawyer looks at Duck like he just paid his summer house payment with Duck's money, which he did. That, that'll that'll grind, a, grind, grind a man's gears <laughs> when he sees that. So he knows that Roger's about to be taken. He's reorganizing the agency behind the agency's back. It's not He's great. bringing them cash on a silver platter, too. Like, that's why they go for it, because if the time is right, and what he knows personally about Roger is that for Roger, the time is right. For, for, for Bert Cooper, you never really know with that guy. He's getting on in years, so sure, it could be the right time anytime for him. But it's not like they were explicitly looking to sell or had some kind of deal in place or anything like that. This is... Duck putting two and two together. And because he knows that PPL and their situation in the U.S. is on a different trajectory, this could work. So I don't know that I'd, I just don't know if I'd classify it as sleazy. I would, I, it's opportunistic. It's, um, he wasn't asked to go find a buyer for the firm, you know, so it's, it's might be a little bit overambitious, you know, for, for what he's, it's like, Duck, just get us some nice clients. That'd be good, you know. Uh, that, that could have been their response. But this is, a legitimate business proposition from a legitimate suitor with a legitimate purpose to buy the firm. They weren't a suitor. They turned him into a suitor. I hear you. Objectively, it, it might be on the up and up. He's lying to people. The salesperson's job is to create demand. Yeah, no, you. it's valid. You might be right. I just, to me, the tells are that he's lying to people about how it went. How they called me. That's an actual lie. So that's a tell that he knows there's something to cover up about how it went. Maybe it's technically on the up and up, but it felt very, it felt sleazy. Okay. Yeah. Also, it's worth worth exploring as well how how Roger's in this situation. We open the episode with him and Jane uh, in the refractory period after, after a night together. 
looks like a night, right? It looks like a morning. Oh, it's a morning. It's a, it's a, it's a dawn of some kind, right? Talk about <laughs> fantasy versus reality. Those two. <laughs> and that's how the episode opens. You've got James, mm. you got a voiceover, a woman's voiceover reading a poem, and you're not really sure. It takes a second, you know, because we're not used to Jane as a voiceover, right? So, but did it remind you of the meditations in an emergency poem at the beginning of the season? Not in the least. It reminded me of a of a of an eighth grade girl reading a poem to a crush. No, agreed. In the like, by the time we figured out what's happening, for sure. But in those first few words, when you've got a voiceover of a poem no that's interesting it, yeah, i never that didn't it, occur to me at all to me it hearkened to that but then it was a cheap substitute to your point right what's <laughs> a cheap substitute it's a different it's a different play on that fantasy because roger's obviously in some kind of a fantasy dopamine hit existence right now that he believes in and he goes as far as proposing to the woman he left his wife for my favorite line is when he says to her you're getting to me. I'm like, you already left your wife for her. Like, I think she got to you. Like, yeah. like I don't, what do you yeah, mean? Right. What was like, your first clue? Yeah. <laughs> or he says, I'll have to keep you in line or I'll lose you. That's another one. Oh, that's he. I mean, that was, and she's <laughs> like, Christ. yep. She goes, yeah. Indeed, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a lovely couple to hang out with. <laughs> it's the first of two older men with, younger women they shouldn't be with in the episode oh that's i that's a good that's a good connection i didn't i didn't connect don's the hobo running away without his suitcase or his clothes roger's the rich guy who's keeping you know trying to keep as much of it as he can and they're both in sort of transitions here and you know but roger's the rich guy (laughs) roger's it's not that don doesn't have money but um but don in his deep down is still the hobo he's still the whore child so that drives how they kind of view their respective situations right i mean it's kind of very clear i had forgotten that don loses his luggage i had forgotten all about mm-hmm. that piece and you've got the great this is such a like your kind of line that you love about how the i mean this is one of the more brilliant filling in exposition moments which is mm-hmm. pete saying TWA is offered to buy you new luggage and Don says, and fill it with my things. <laughs> and so that's how we find out. But in that great scene later yeah. when Joy says, you want to get your things, and Don says, no, it almost makes him look to her and it almost feels to him. It's almost, there's the fantasy there that he's a guy who can just leave his luggage behind. In fact, he, didn't, he legit didn't have any, and he didn't say no. They fucking lost it. <laughs> but that, in and of itself, is like a is, is like the way commercials looked in that period too, right? It was sort of like, oh, whatever our product is, it's like a fantasy world. It's Calgon, take me away, or whatever the whatever the fill in the blank. But he's playing it for real, and, and the fact that he's an ad man, it would draw on that in some way, you know, metaphorically. But but here's these two guys with these weird transitions going on. Don is saying keep my things i just who the hell needs i'm i'm leaving i'm blowing this joint roger's fighting to keep everything he can because he's got his lawyer he's got a (laughs) tooth and nail to keep whatever whatever money he's got you know she's not entitled to the family money she's not entitled to the firm money he's he's got a scratch for all of it dan you know that i'm doing some work right now these days for a divorce lawyer have i told you this oh is that right no i i listened to that (laughs) with a little bit more of a trained ear going now i don't know what the laws were then but let me tell you that's not how it works 
<laughs> that is not you. She is entitled to. Mona, yeah, Mona's, Mona's going to do pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> you make me new with laughter. You make me old with wisdom. You make wine taste sweeter. Who wrote that? I read a lot of poetry when I'm inspired. Before we go to California and stay there, I do want to talk about Peggy and Kurt. And the duo we didn't know we needed. The duo we didn't know we needed. But also, I mean, there's there's Kurt's uh, amazing outing of himself. It, we, we've never seen anything like that. They've never seen anything like that. It's meant to be shocking, and it is. It lands perfectly. It just, it, it, it's, a, it's a true lightning bolt out of the blue, and it destroys everything in the vicinity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's I mean and it's and it's really beautiful. Yes. You know, yes. in one moment you fall in love with him. You really do. You can't not. Guileless. Guileless. Guileless, which actually that answers what I was just thinking because one of the things that okay, here's a shock. I might very much identify with Peggy in this scenario. <laughs> like I might very much I don't know if you know that my best friend is a hairstylist. <laughs> there you go. Um, there's, you know, there's been there's been more uh, more than a handful. Does he of, write copy of... too? Does copy account? <laughs> George is just a brilliant human being in, in many ways. Something that bothered me a little, and the fix to that bother is he truly is guileless. Is he has to know that Peggy thinks this is a date? Uh, yeah. There's kind of no responsibility for th that letdown for her. Now he may just have no fucks to give about any about anybody's expectations about anything, which kind of is what I, I think. think. I think it's more like that because he's not he's not playing games with her. He's not trying to lead her on. Right, and I've seen particularly with younger, particularly with men in, in that age range. You know, young young men can be just unaware how other people think or feel. On a, and 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 uncaring oh. about it, right? And so you could add a lot of age ranges to that, but yes, I think you're sure. Right. But I mean, I've really, no, I mean, I've true. seen a, that. A young man clueless is a young man clueless, you know. And a young gay man clueless, looking for attention, looking for this, doesn't doesn't often care about who he leaves in his. That wake. said, the moment in the conference room when he asks Peggy, we go. To the, to Bob Dylan. Yes, he must realize that she's going to interpret it as a date, but I think he was just looking at a friend, potential friend, who would like to go, and he's got ticket. Let's go. I have ticket. We neighbor. Let's go. Like, I don't think he's even, it's just two young people going to see a concert. Now, again, should he be a little more aware to know what she how she's going to interpret that? Sure. But I think it was totally came from the most genuine. I agree. I think it's it's not terrible at all. It just it was it was a little triggering from my past. Mayhem ensues. Yeah. So that you know that scene. You know, first you've got the rampant gossip. Nobody holds back, right? There's no pretending that we don't do this kind of gossip. There's no. It's like her, you too, la la la. Oh look, Peggy's got a da, 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 da. all of that. You know, from Joan to all of them. It's 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 just so gross. You know, to the argument I sometimes bring. No, I don't think that's out of out of era. I think that sounds exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I that think happened today. Yeah, people do it today, just a little toned down, but but not much. And then this beautiful, this incredible, bold statement, and then the horrifying reactions. Jones was my, <laughs> Jones was like, oh, didn't see that one. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> missed, missed one. Right. Didn't There's talk a to you. Gatard being jammed. Yeah, 
But you, I mean, Ken especially. Um, and Harry. And Ken and Harry. Yeah. And then, obviously, Sal. Looking at his own career burning up in flames, were he to go there? It's not like this doesn't ring a bell to him. But I'll break this down just a little, starting with Ken. What you see with Ken is just shameless homophobia, otherism, horrible reaction. Less so by that standard, still pretty bad, but less so by that uh, by the standards of the time of 62. Mm-hmm. So what he, even as horrible as it rings to our ears, it would not raise an eyebrow there to what he said or how he said it or how he intended it. You could shit on a gay guy without, without being even dirty with that. Harry's responses were more of that, of what we would now call like privilege. Right? Harry was saying stuff like, oh, he's a pervert. Oh, what bathroom does he use? Kind of like these little chuckle locker room type of, of comments. I sense them to be a little different from Ken's in that they were, they were more like, hey, get a load of that guy. It wasn't as put-downy as Ken's, which now I'm trying to think of what Ken's were, but I'm, I'm going off the vibe of what Ken said. You think, do you think the bathroom thing and the pervert thing was less put-downy? Was more, was more locker room sensibility. Again, not less less egregious, but more like a privileged guy who doesn't have to really worry about those things. Like, hey, you know, now, now we have one of those here. All right, we'll deal with that. But he has the privilege to really not care. Whereas Ken seemed a little more threatened. Is how I is, is how I is how I felt. Now I could be parsing that a little too closely, but I just which bathroom does he use is pretty threatened, and I say threatened in quotes. Because clearly, there is no threat to these, to your point, to these privileged white men. The only threat there is is to the homosexual who, to who could get beat. But the up. chuckle to me took whatever the whatever uh, venom was in it out in that in that delivery to me. I didn't analyze like which of the two of them was worse, but as you're recapping, mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time. I almost feel like. I almost more sided with Ken if there's a side to be taken of like where he seemed a little more kind of like full of wonder and like these are the things I've heard so what's this going to be like and it's weird and it's freaking me out and it's not going to stop freaking me yeah. out. I don't know. There, it's it's also terrible and it's there's no removing it. You know, we could do an hour on just yeah, parsing exactly. out this from the period, from the now, and what's terrible and what's not. It's also terrible. <laughs> It's so hard to be with, and the and the person who sees it the most is Sal, who the world stops Sal. spinning when when Twig said that. Yes, the whole everything went in slow motion. People's lips were moving; he could not hear them. The world stopped without. Yeah, and that you know you're literally watching this guy, and you know the <clears throat> that the the last shot I noticed that that last shot in that break room of Harry, he says something. I think it was what I wonder what bathroom he. I think that was the the closing jibe. Harry's out of focus. The focus of the camera's on Sal. When he says mm-hmm. Harry's, you know, got the lemon air, you know, halfway down his throat when he's talking. Um, but the focus is on Sal, and the audio is Harry and Twiggy. So, you know, even that, looked, to me, was sort of like, how this impacts Sal is the unspoken, un- unheard part of this, yet it's the elephant in the room for us. The unspoken moment of the episode just prior to that, though, is Sal in the creative meeting that Don doesn't show up for? Um, 
reading the Playboy, which is ostensibly the Playboy that was brought in for Harry for his baby shower. Oh, I didn't catch that. Harry, uh, Sal is reading. The, you know, it's just, it's just un, he's not saying anything. He's, uh, and no one remarks on it. He's just, he's just another straight guy reading Playboy in the, in the conference room. But what, what was funny to me, though, is that, like, a man picked up a copy of Playboy. What do you see the man do with the Playboy? Centerfold. He turns it vertical. Turns it vertical. Sal <laughs> is reading Playboy for the articles. For the articles. <laughs> <laughs> that Playboy stays horizontal. <laughs> Look, in defense, the, there were some really brilliant writing in that. And play, I mean, Playboy, like, that's always well, the, that's joke, the joke. Well, that's the joke, right? But there are, if there's that, you know, there, there may be people today who don't even know that, like, like, it was Rolling Stone quality writing in there. Right, which was why you got to say that, you know, it's yeah, how it I'm became somewhat for legitimate for other, for other writers, of course. <laughs> Sal's sitting there going, you know, oh, what's Nixon up to? You know, <laughs> it's just it's totally, <laughs> totally another world for him. Anyway, but th th those two, you know, connected moments are to, to know. No, that's, that's very good. You, 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 that, is, that is a reminder that Sal is every moment of every, every day. Every moment of every day. Protecting his identity from the world and from himself. And, and acting. Yeah. He's acting, right? He's acting. You had old style. No, I'm not. This is not modern office working woman. What are you talking about? I fix you. When George and I met a decade ago, he had been a hairdresser, but he currently, in ten, a decade ago, wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't a practicing <laughs> hairstylist. Um, and he had told me that, and I it wasn't until he went back to work that I was like, oh, you really like this is a glamorous. He's an impressive stylist, but at the time, he offered to cut my hair, and I I go out to his apartment in Brooklyn, and he walks me over to the mirror, and he's saying, see, you've got kind of looking at my cheekbone or whatever. This is your most, this is like one of your best features of your face. So I think if we take the length and we length and we bring it to here, you know, and doing this whole, like I'm looking in the mirror and, and he's making me feel really beautiful and really the attention that a great like energy can, can give you. And he, he hooks me on it and I'm got, we're cutting my hair shorter. Great. He brings me over to the, the kitchen sink. He's got it all set up and he's just about to duck my head under the water. And he goes, and this way you won't look so frumpy. <laughs> and under the water I go. <laughs> there you go. And I've never let him forget it. And he's never let me forget it because he wasn't wrong. Um, but it, or, or as Kurt says, a little girl, little girl. Exactly. I mean, it really, yeah. <laughs> it really, that scene really happened to me. Um, but, you know, what I'm left with about those two, ultimately, I could write a book and maybe I should about the, the precious uh, type of friendship that can exist between a a woman who likes men. I don't want to say straight woman because I'm not. A woman who likes men and a gay man or a man who likes men. Let's <laughs> not limit anybody. <laughs> There's something really special that can exist there that can be its own kind of energy. Um, and I'm happy for Peggy that she gets that. But also it made me go, oh, Peggy just has no friends. Yeah. Like, Peggy gets a friend no, no, at all? No one in her life's going to tell her that hairdo's got to go. Right. But, I mean, really, you don't see her. You know, Peggy doesn't have, you, you just know that. You, she's now right. living alone. You just know that Peggy has no social That's life. That's right. And 
how very lonely she is and she's trying to connect you know with her family she's just she's very shut down as father as father gill said very door work and i'm super happy for her that she has a curtain in her life and she looks <laughs> way better it was it we didn't know we needed these two but we do and uh you know what could we do unless we spoiler we don't get to see very much of them so this is kind of it but um it was great. It was an absolutely wonderful scene and charming. And her reactions are, even before he cuts her hair off, are just genuine and sweet. And he is genuine and sweet. And yeah, it's a nice, nice little pairing. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. And then we'll go to California. And then we'll go to California. Okay, so we're in L.A., disoriented off the plane we can feel the jet lag of pete and don by the pool and of course it's like it, it's set up to be like here's the two suits at the pool because <laughs> it's two suits at the pool it's, it's so literally funny. two suits at the pool and we learn as you said very cleverly that don's don's bag don's luggage is missing and then we realize don's baggage is missing too <laughs> don, <laughs> right. don completely uh when he left his things in new york he really left his things in what's the, what's the saying the uh very new agey. Wherever you go, there you are. Don is going to learn that in L.A., even as he leaves, there he is. You know, going back to alcoholism, there's a there's a people talk about geographical cures. And that is absolutely what Don is after right now. He's like, everything is, you know, everything is terrible in New York. I'm going to go to California. Oops. Oh, it'll be <laughs> all better there. Yeah. But yeah, this dreamy state. Definitely, to the extent it was in New York, it follows him, or to the extent it's it's there for him in, in L.A. He's got Betty at the bar. Betty at the bar was wild, and it, and it was an indication of of the dream state of this episode, for sure. Very much. Yeah, he's 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 sort of halfway between and, and nowhere, right? So, you know, then he gets to sit in on this uh, lovely presentation of something called a Merv, that, and not Griffin that this is basically, you know, we're just sitting around waiting for the end of the world, guys. It was it's kind of it's kind of that I think it was Mo Ryan, like Mo Ryan wrote at the time, I seem to remember, like this was the anti Kodak pitch. Right. <laughs> like, this isn't we're all going home. This is all we're all gonna die. All, oh, that's you know? I love Mo Ryan. Yeah, we got fourteen warheads on this baby and uh we can we can select our sites. So yeah, it's just minutes away. So if Don was feeling existential dread at home, he goes, he goes to sit in on a, uh, on a session, a breakout session at the Rocket Fair for more existential dread. It, look, it would be to to someone who's sensitive and kind of a little bit strung out as Don is, um, it can be pretty unnerving. Pete didn't seem really phased by it, but but Don reacted. It didn't seem like it. It did that to anybody else in the room, or for the most part. Like Don is definitely. No. Definitely, Don definitely took it. He wasn't took prepared. Took it the whole. He took it the whole way. No, yeah, I, Pete's been Pete's been calling aerospace companies for two weeks. Don did not seem as prepared. Yeah, that that messed him up. <laughs> totally and look, that's that's the domino, right? That's there was a domino in New York that got him to L.A. Now there's a domino domino in L.A. that wants to get him the fuck out of L.A. and brings him somehow to Palm Springs. He's already met Joy at this point. Yeah, they were introduced. Yeah. They, uh, they've already had their first encounter. He's already met that the who we don't know yet as a family, but the 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 viscount, the dad who's pimping out his daughter to strange men at hotels, 
you know, and that's that's interesting too. We should we'll talk about that more when they're in Palm Springs. But uh, yeah, there's this kind of lazy, hazy craziness to <laughs> this fucked out group of people. Um, but entertaining as hell. I mean, who wouldn't want to hang out with Willie? By the way, those shorts that he wears when he comes in their room, they're they're halfway up his crotch. That's why they call him Willie, I think. Because this guy's got everything ready to go. And he struts in on his daughter, you know, the morning after. It's Ooh. a little fucked out. So, uh, but anyway, Don, he's, he's more than willing, once he's learned how quickly they're all going to be annihilated uh, from this fancy new rocket, that, uh, and he's got Pete to worry about. And he's like, I could either sit, let's see, I can sit by the pool with Pete Campbell leering at girls, teenagers, or I can go with, you know, into the unknown with this hottie that I just met and, um, you know, see where that takes me. <laughs> so I, I, think the, I think the choice is, is rather easy for them. Once again, Pete on the surface is just a weird Pete jerk through this whole <laughs> well, thing. Well, Pete would rather die in New York than any place else, right? Like he's, he's the ultimate East Coaster. What ends up happening, though, I mean, what even bef even before what ends up happening, what what you see is Don pushing Pete to do his job, and Pete does his job, and you know yes. Pete's definitely like let's party, and 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 Don's like follow your leads, like come here and do the work so that you you're <laughs> you're doing well, and it seems at the at the end of the episode back in New York when when Pete is back in New York and Don is not that. Pete, Pete, Pete did his job. Pete yeah. did great. Pete like brought, Pete, home, brought home some cabbage. Yeah. Once again, did a great <laughs> job. And he, and he's just, it's hard to even recognize because he's so Pete about it. He's so so goofy and Don's already gone AWOL. And um, I love, though, when that little moment when uh, Don introduces Pete to this circus family that um, <laughs> Pete uses the family name. Peter Dykeman can't like people I give know. a shit who Dykeman is. That's like I know. Yeah, we, yeah, we owned uh, Northern Manhattan or whatever. He's <laughs> like, well trained to use that name. Fucking it's, Monica. It is now officially all he's inherited. <laughs> that's I mean, that's you know, it's literally all he's he's got left. So why not? So Pete and Don separate. Rather, Don separates from Pete, and not only leaves Pete kind of hanging there, but again, he, he manages to handle himself. But now Don the Nomad, the hobo, is uh, <clears throat> joining this this cast of characters in Palm Springs. You know, again, it's like the show, you know, normally it's, um, again, like the Brady Bunch went to Hawaii, right? Right, right. It's all like, it was like <laughs> luau's and tiki's and, yeah. and spiders and things. Uh, this is like... <laughs> You know, and everybody's hair got curly. Right. It's just like it was very, very obvious we're in this. And uh in a somewhat similar vein, like like the show just luxury it just loves being where it is right now, right? You could just tell the vibe, the again, part of what I said at the, at the outset. Like I think it just absolutely loves immersing itself in this in this environment. And it's beautiful and it's the house and it's the pool and it's the sun and it's the clothes and the whole bit. And the music that plays while Don and Joy are entering the house. There's this amazing music behind that. I don't know if it's original music or if it was something else, period, but wow, it's just some really jazzy stuff. Anyway, the show's having fun being the show, and... 
I found the whole thing not beautiful. It was supposed to be beautiful. It was like you're looking at beautiful things, but they mm-hmm. weren't beautiful. There was this darkness always underneath it. I agree with all of that, but I but I find the 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 totalness, the total picture of all that, the total vibe and the total. It looks great on the surface. You know, these people are totally janky. That to me is a great setup. I'm I'm in. I want to know what's gonna. I want to watch these people. I want to see how it goes. I want to see how much they smoke. I want to know what they have mm-hmm. for dinner. I want to know what kind of stupid word games they play. It like I want. I'm in. I want it. So, to me, I agree. There was something totally dark underneath all, and we see it right. Night one, even though Don collapses and he's got you know. Klaus Mengele ready to give him, shoot him up with some. And why is he shooting him in the vein and like it's heroin? He's got his arm stretched out. Why not in his bicep the way you would a normal fucking shot? I don't know. God knows that was what another. he was planning on Don's instincts him. were entirely correct to jank his arm. Go, Don. So, you know, just give me a fucking water and an aspirin, please. I'm from New York. We don't need that shit. I don't know what was in that syringe. I doubt Klaus knows what was in that syringe. Get the fuck out of there. What, what, uh, but I also wondered what was wrong with Don. Like, is he still taking phenobarbital? Well, we know he's on twice as much as he was on before. Has he stopped eating, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. Again, he flew out that morning. I just want to back up a second. One of the things Melinda McGraw said to us when we spoke with her, and if you've missed our interview with our very own Bobby Barrett, uh, go back and check it out. It's rich. She spoke about Don in no uncertain terms as an addict. We're talking about being a sex addict. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I had ever applied that before, but 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 if I had, it was fleeting. And so that's one of these things that's kind of sticking with me. Yeah, it's another way to look at everything. Exactly. And, you know, he's a man who in the moment has nothing left. I mean, he doesn't have nothing left. He has money and a job and, you know, and a, and a, and an estranged wife, but he does have a family. And, you know, you know, there's he's got plenty, but he's experiencing... You know this his own his own existential crisis or starting to, um, which of course is only going to turn up the heat on your addiction. So and enter enter joy. Yep. No, she was the the right the right Twinkie at the right time. Why would you deny yourself something you want? I mean, that's not a philosophy. That's an addiction. <laughs> and it's and it's Don's career, by the way. Yeah. So it's you know yeah. it's whatever you're doing is okay, right? It's right back to season one, episode one. You are okay. So, yeah, I just, I thought that was, um, as we see Duck return to drinking, we see Don, who has been struggling with this addiction, just go off with this young girl who claims she's 21. (laughs) Sure. Sure does. Sure does say she's 21. Just real quick on Joy, I want to say one little thing, which is, I I only noticed this in, I think, the last scene with her in the pool, but... um, her voice sounded like January Jones. She sounded like <laughs> Betty. And I don't know if that was a let's close our eyes when we do casting. I've heard that if... before. Yeah. Have you? It was not Betty's voiceover, but it was. It's just it, it a did. It did. Well, it was a coincidence or it was a casting choice. You close, mm-hmm. you close your eyes in the casting process, maybe because we've right. already now seen a Betty. Maybe we want that right. very subtle, you know, not to be distinguished by anybody, but some friggin' podcasters ten years later. Yeah, I personally don't hear it. I heard it, but a lot of people have said that. Yeah, we're headed to Lyford Key, Nassau. Why? 
That's what we do. Something about taxes. It's very different than here. I think you'd like it. So all these addictions, whatever they are, I, what what made me think of that actually in this moment was maybe Don stopped eating because Don could be, you know, Don could have some food issues too that we never really deal with. But you know, that's a classic. I'm just gonna I'm going to California. I don't need. It's to eat. a long day. It's the flight out. It was probably first thing they land. Luggage is missing. The hotel. The session. The ride out to Palm Springs. Yes, yeah. he could have not eaten. He could have not had anything to drink. But either way, yeah, he's heat exhaustion. He's 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 out of it. It was a really serious moment. It was wild how, like, I get it. Like, you have some heat exhaustion, you get better. But everybody operated under the assumption that that was over. And <laughs> there's nothing to worry about. And now let's party and eat. Now he came out for the dinner. Yeah, he seemed to get rest and refresh. Extra and... chipper, and he was smiling, and it was weird. It was a Don Draper I've never seen before. <laughs> but yeah, there's that night, and it kind of ends on an upswing with the. I don't know why Oslo gets applause, but somehow they, he was the hero for coming up with Oslo. I think I would have come up with something as well, just not, not to be competitive. But It was always the answer in Trivial Pursuit. Was I, I was, he, was, he was 20 years ahead of his time. I guess ahead so. Ahead of his time. I guess so. <laughs> but again, amazing to watch, to watch this sort of pre-globalization you know, crowd um, be so, be so global-minded. So ends on an upswing. He and Joy retire to whoever's room that really is that they're in. And then we see that it's her, really is her father. And it's more of this kind of fluid identity kind of thing. Like, like she's with me, but she's, you know, we're not related, but now she's my daughter. And there was an echo somehow of like how, of almost like when Kurt said he was homosexual. It's like, it's a fact, and now I'm going to talk about it. And in... Palm Springs, Don is like kind of smacked in the face with this fact that just kind of rears its head. Um, not saying they're linked thematically. I just mean that there's this, there's this within the episode, this fluid nature of who people are. Don's constantly changing. Based on interpretation, because he was always totally. her father. Totally. And Kurt was always, always a homosexual. Right. And no one thought of him that way. And he didn't think of him as her father. And Don you know, is changing shape every five minutes here once he gets out to the West. It's just a constant shape shift, a constant chameleon. You know, Don, by the way, you know, they make they, they make plain, like there's clothes you can take in, in the room or whatever. He looks great. They look like they were stitched on him. Yeah. He comes out looking like a mannequin with, with the, the blue top and the tan pants. It was, I, could, I could do this all day, right? So it's this constant... Um, more of the surreal, more of the dreaminess kind of element to it. But because Don is who he is, as we said, he's someone who people admire even though they don't know him, right? It's just this more, it's just like a heavy-handed dose of all of that. I mean, Willie keeps saying he's so beautiful. We bring him along because <laughs> right, he's beautiful. Right. And who are these people anyway? It's the creepy level. It's a, it, it, it's <laughs> The, the whole <clears throat> the whole nature of going to L.A. and that kind of, especially back then, it was more exotic than it may feel now, um, was that it was this kind of Eden and this kind of fantasy land and Hollywood and movies and the whole bit. And you get out there and you can get kind of drunk on it. And in Don's case, he kind of took it took it all the way to the end. But But there is this fantasy that he thinks he's living and we're led to believe that he's, that it's right or that it's it's sort of real. But there is a there's a as Don there's a crack in the glass right there is a <laughs> there is um, 
there's a creepiness to the relationships that was hidden. There is a reality to the lifestyle and the toll that it takes. And, like, you know, you're not really going to escape that. There's no real running away. Again, wherever you are, there, you, wherever you go, there you are. Because uh, Don's confronted with some kids who seem to be, don't have a home, which isn't a good vibe for, for, for everything. Um, and, a, and a bit of reality and smacking Don in the face. We don't, we don't see him and Joy really together again because he wakes up on the couch, at least at that moment alone. Uh, we presume they slept together. But he's now, I mean, he, look, if he, <laughs> the bubble over Don's head when Willie walked in the room with those shorts was, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> get me out of this Yeah, place. the discovery of that layer of things. You know, Joy was this perfect fantasy girl. I love sex. You love sex, which which is a little much for him, right? He he likes his, you know, he the women he actually likes are a little less bold. There's there's Bobby who he says he never doesn't like, right? He's not necessarily attracted to her sexual agency, <laughs> right? No, no, Don Don I think is attracted to intelligent women. I mean, she seems intelligent but the sexual agency is a little is a little he likes them he likes them a little a little weaker a little more needy of him mm -hmm. and you yeah. know but in other ways she's very much this fantasy girl right she's we can you can you can still sleep with other people but the father thing really just kind of that that was too much for him part one too much then the children the little boy yeah. and the little girl i mean he's got children at home and this isn't a separate world it felt like one, but it's, it's not. not. And he, as much as he's maybe not the greatest father in the world, he would not want his children around this. Yeah. It was the one-two punch that finally had him make that phone call. The further out he goes, the further this journey takes him, right? New York to L.A., L.A. to Palm Springs, going further and further out from reality. It feels like you're more and more in a bubble, more and more protected, more and more away. And between the creepiness of, the, of, of Willie and that relationship and um, the puncturing of the bubble with this guy coming in with his tired, cranky children was the, 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 the ultimate one. And reality follows you all the way out to Palm Springs. And it's all about family. What, what pierces his bubble is that it's about family. Is, is, and that's, yeah. that's a bridge too far for him, I guess. So cut to Don making plans to get the fuck out of there. We see Don grab a phone, rip a page out of, <laughs> of <laughs> Joy's book, <laughs> which is the the uh, which is the nice capper on that relationship. Um, but he makes this mysterious call, and it's it kind of it kind of called back for me to it called back to Indian Summer in season one, where Pete snags the personal box on Don's the delivery that comes to Don's office, and Don when he's sitting behind Don's desk, and immediately. We've got this cliffhanger that didn't, <laughs> there was no lead up. There was no track laid for this at all. So when Don picks up the phone and hi, it's Dick Whitman, blah, 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 coming out to see you, writes down the address. What the fuck? Like, this is wild. We didn't know that, right? This is like, this is like Peggy and Kurt. <laughs> we had no idea there was such a thing happening. There was a setup for it. It just, it was at the beginning of the season. None of that is evident at this point. It isn't that there's no setup. It is possible, and we won't know until next episode, but it, it certainly left the viewers wondering in real time at the time if this related to the note Don sends at the beginning of the season. It's been hanging out there all season. 
We have no clue, right? You're like, right. oh, could well, be this related. probably that, maybe, right? This could be related. But otherwise, it's a cliffhanger that simply didn't exist in any way, shape, or form. The, you know, like going out to LA, going out to LA was like, oh, he's going to get to see so-and-so. Like, you know, we don't yeah, know anything. we don't have that. So, yeah, so that suddenly instantly created, and it was really awesome to see. And then, of course, the, the final shot of him stretching his one arm out over, I mean, not, <laughs> over the couch. I mean, not subtle. You know, I may not yeah. be a, a film angle. Yeah, I thought you weren't an analyst. <laughs> but that was, uh, that was a beautiful, like, it was, it was fun to see them be so almost explicit, explicit and yeah. egregiously, yeah. egregiously referen referential. Yeah. And it was very like, satisfying and very exciting. Well, they don't hit you over the head every week with it. Right. It's not like, when are they going to get to the show? Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Every couple episodes. It, it feels earned whenever they do it. They do it a few different times. It shows you this is this is a big one. Whatever happened, yeah. whatever we're doing right here, it it goes to the essence of Don Draper. In our little universe, that is a signal of importance. I think, I think that's, I think that's it. Think we talked about this. I think episode. we talked about this episode. We're gonna come back. Um, in addition to quotes, I've got just a little behind the scenes story as well. So see you on the other side. <laughs> What's your quote, Roberta? Well, it's just so obvious. I mean, <laughs> I don't know why I picked the wrong boys. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me about that. You know, Kurt asked her to the concert. She didn't seem to, she wasn't fishing for Kurt. She wasn't flirting with Kurt. He said he'd seen her, he'd seen Dylan at Carnegie Hall. Didn't she sort of set it up for him to ask? Didn't she sort of be like, oh, you like Bob Dylan? I like Bob Dylan. A tiny bit, but not in a, there was no way for her to know he had another set of tickets to a different show. That's true. There was nothing about, like, she you know. She did cast the first Peggy version of a flirt, I thought. Subtle enough that you can't say that that she picked him. <laughs> That's I, the part about, oh, now they're a couple because he asked her completely unceremoniously and out of the blue. Now there are things like, oh, that's, that's like, I didn't see her as pining for him. What I actually, I thought was interesting was that um, we've all felt, I don't know why I picked the wrong whoever, but I, I was surprised to hear her say that. It's, it's not like now where you'd be like, oh my God, they're all gay, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was a little surprised that that is Peggy's take on herself. I don't have that about her, right? I, you know, mm. Pete was a, Pete was a disaster. Her picker was broken for Pete. For me, it was an interesting window into how we tell ourselves stories about ourselves that don't quite match the reality. Like, yeah, her her picker was broken with Pete, but I I still think it's much more what Father Gill said. She's just shut down. She, you know, again, I don't I don't get the impression that she's got friends. I don't get the impression that she's dating. There was yeah. nothing wrong with um, cutie nudnik early in the season that she was making out with. We talked about that. He was just mm -hmm. fine. He was a perfectly fine temp <laughs> yeah. that she passed yeah. on. I understand why she passed on him. I understand why she's pushing people away. But that her interpretation is that she picks all the wrong boys is is adorable, a little inaccurate. Yeah. Um, and it could be in a convenient line, frankly, for the moment you know, in the episode. Right, to cover for her embarrassment, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to have be steeped in history. Yeah, yeah. You no, know. that's, she's a good writer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, great quote. That's a good one. 
what is your quote? You know, when Don's, I think it's either at the ta- at the dinner table or perhaps before, he makes that comment. So I assume you're all well off mm. to this to this crowd, <laughs> and it's it's like Don, your Dick Whitman is showing, right? It's your complete. You know, kind of like when he says he played a little football in high school. Like, that's not something these people can really relate to. Right. right. <laughs> this is not, you know, you saying you're well off sort of like, what the fuck did he just say? Like, there would just be, that's not, it was the most unsophisticated thing he could say almost when he said it. And I think he probably realized it right after the fact, but it's it kind of like a really interesting way to show that this character was, so far out of his element, and in a way so comfortable. Being out of his element. Yeah, that he was a completely different person. He wasn't Don with his suit of armor and the hat and the just, you know, and the, and the guard up. Like I said, over that dinner, his whole demeanor was a demeanor we've never seen. He was all boyish, boyish and, and yeah. smiling and charming yeah. and playing these games and participating and not aloof, and all these things we don't normally yeah. see in Don Draper. That's right. It was, That's you're right. right, it was his Dick Whitman showing. So, your Dick, yeah, so, so your Dick Whitman's hanging out. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, so I, I thought that was like a great a great moment within the, the larger moment of, of what was going on. That was really good. So, a little behind, just tiny little behind the scenes before we go. Uh, what was the line about Pasadena? Do you remember? It was... Uh, Pete uh, saying, um, you're going to have to come here and meet me, meet me by the pool. I can't get a cab out to Pasadena. Yeah, and there was some eye-rolling, right, about Pasadena? Uh, just that it's sort of the sticks. Yeah. You know, the episode ends with that suitcase being returned. Mm-hmm. And um, to that uh, very distinctive red door. You know, I, I, and I love that. I love that that red door, which which was just a design choice to make the house, you know, stand out a little bit, but also yeah. it's just something great about a red door ends up being the identifying factor in that moment that we know exactly where we are. how you know we're at the Draper's house. No question. And just a reminder, Betty Draper had a dream about a suitcase. When my sister Deborah and I went to L.A. to the set of Mad Men, we actually met up with one of our other writers who we've referenced. She's Hullabaloo was was what she went by. She was one of our writers, and we'd had this online relationship with her for years, and she she really was wonderful and you know took took care of us and she wasn't the only one we, we were a couple people we met but she was one of the main people we hung out with her we spent a day she took us to Hollywood Boulevard it was a whole thing and one of the things she did was she drove us out uh, to Pasadena I think she lives in Pasadena actually uh, we went out to Pasadena so she could show us showed us a couple things actually she showed us the stable showed us the stables from the season and she showed us the house she showed us. Don and Betty's house. Draper's house, yeah. The door was not red because every time they came and to do a season's worth of exteriors, they would paint that door red. <laughs> and then when they were done, they would paint, paint it, it back. On red. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so it was just fun, that little Pasadena nod. There's a lot happening in Pasadena. That's where that I'm pretty sure that's where the I'm pretty sure that's where the stable is, or it's near there. And it's definitely cool. where the, the Draper's house is. And she she took us to this, um, coincidentally enough, this fabulous, authentic Mexican restaurant uh, in that area. So anyway, just a little little peek behind the scenes. And that was the Jet Set. That's our show. What do we have next time? It it only gets worse from here. What do we have? Mountain King. Jesus. Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) 
Maybe we'll find out where Don's going after Palm Springs. Maybe we will. All right. We will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Hey, Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. Please give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and share us on social media. If you'd like to support us, we are at patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. Our members get extras and outtakes. We love hearing from you. And yet, we've been giving you the wrong email address. Reach us at questions at theycoinditpod.com. Hang with us on Twitter and Instagram, TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got so much more Mad Men to get to and more special guests. We're looking forward to all of it with you. See you next episode.